The Chattanooga family of shockwave therapy devices bring deep tissue treatments in less time, with less effort and greater patient comfort. Built around proven penetrating acoustic wave technology, Chattanooga offers treatment solutions that can reach up to 12.5 centimeters below the skin, making even the deepest causes of pain treatable and resolvable. Whether you're a growing clinic needing a versatile solution or a large sports medicine center that demands the best in recovery, Chattanooga has a therapy solution to get your patients moving. Learn more at djoglobal.com slash shockwave therapy. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. I think we all recognise that quality musculoskeletal rehabilitation covers more than simply physical function. After serious injury, it's more than simply about whether the athlete can run, jump or land without pain or swelling. But how comfortable do you feel to design a rehabilitation program that trains the brain, not only the body? Today, Dr. Dustin Grooms shares his research and practical expertise to help you harness neuroscience and the connection between the brain and the body when you're supporting injured athletes to recover, return to sport and perform at their best. Dustin also shares his tips on which tech you might consider using and how to get the most out of the wide range of apps and technology that's on the market today. So do make sure you check out the show notes for more info on how to get started with virtual reality. Righto, let's get into today's episode. Dustin, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you. Dustin, today we're talking about training the brain as part of a comprehensive approach to sports injury rehabilitation. Can I ask you to kick us off by explaining what we know about the connection between the brain and the body? And perhaps let's focus on your special subject of knee injury. So what do we know about the connection between the brain and the knee? So we all know that the brain is required for us to move because you have to have a nervous system in order to propel your muscles for action. What we've specifically focus on, though, is how much the brain change from our more common orthopedic injuries. What a lot of people don't recognize is that our ligaments are innervated with mechanoreceptors, which give our nervous system feedback on where our joints are in space. And the ACL has a a sufficient number of these receptors that there's actually an imprint in our sensory cortex for our ACL. There's a lot of really cool basic science studies showing that this ligament has some representation in our sensory cortex. And so you have this direct connection between your brain and the structures within your knee. But in typical physical therapy or physio practice, we tend to really focus on the muscles around the knee or maybe even the hip and trunk control. And we focus on restoring a lot of the symptoms, but we also should probably think about how the nervous system is generating that movement because that is fundamentally changing after an injury. What our lab has has mostly shown is that we see this shift to require more motor cortex activity And we think that is due to requiring more focused attention to generate a quad contraction. Anyone who's treated these patients knows that after these ligament injuries, suddenly their muscles tend to shut down. And a lot of people call that arthrogenic muscle inhibition. So it's just a reflex response, shuts the quad down. And mostly we think that's due 
to preserve loading on the knee joint to prevent anterior shear and protect the knee after you've lost this stabilizer that would normally resist that anterior shear from the quad. So the nervous system is very smart. It knows I have an injury here. I need to not load it in that plane. But however, you get the reconstruction or maybe you're a coper and you don't need the reconstruction, but your quad still isn't firing. And so what we see first is that it takes more neural drive from the, from the motor cortex to get the same output. And then some of our follow-up studies show that we see increased connectivity with frontal cortex regions, areas that are responsible for your attention, and especially a programming or movement relative to things you're focused on in the world, and also more visual-related activities. So you start to you rely more on your visual spatial cues to help you program knee movement when you used to probably be able to just use proprioception and sensory control. Now, I think many of us going through university studies in PT, in athletic training, in sports therapy, will have learned about proprioception. It sounds like you're talking about something that's much, much broader than simply proprioception here. Yeah, that's a very good uh, clarification. So proprioception, we normally think of it as just your ability to approximate where your joints are in space or detect movement. And this could be through either passive means or active with the musculature. I would, when I refer to proprioception, I refer to this ability, but also the underlying neural processing um, that's related to that proprioceptive ability. And what we would term in the brain when you have this reorganization, we would call it sensory reweighting. So when you go to program movement, you rely on both vestibular cues. A lot of that relies on your head orientation and core orientation with the world. And then you rely on visual cues and then proprioceptive cues from your skin, muscles, and mechanoreceptors like in your ligaments. And so if any of that's damaged, in this case, the proprioceptors in the knee ligament, you're going to see this shift. And since vestibular input's pretty constant, you can't really compensate there as easily. Um, we see a shift towards visual resources to help the program movement. We're focusing today on training and integrating training the brain, what I'm going to refer to as training the brain with training the the physical body. Let's talk about, let's jump straight into that and talk about what does training the brain look like? What would this program look like? How would you set it up? And how would you suggest that folks go about thinking about putting some of these training principles into their rehabilitation programs? Certainly. And I love this question because I think it's the most salient, most important piece of all of our research is you find all these brain differences and it's like, well, what, what do I do as a clinician? Because I'm obsessed with trying to recover range of motion. I want to recover swelling. I want them to have good function in their life. How do I handle yet another thing I have to think about? I never want you to change your fundamentals of your therapy. So you still have to recover all of that. And most of the time, we don't even train the brain separately. So you might see a lot of um, apps or brain training games that are meant to improve your processing speed and reaction time. And all of those can be helpful. So isolated cognitive training or visual motor training certainly won't, won't hurt your patients. It's probably not a bad idea. Most of this framework really centers around just how you prescribe your current therapy. I have my normal goals, which is recover range of motion. And then I have my exercise I might be doing for that. And I'm going to cover strength. I also have just one more column for my goals or my progressions. And that is just neural control of movement. And there's a lot of ways you can add a little change to your therapy and you can impact how the brain is going to organize their movement. Um, it's starting to look like our own therapy is inducing a lot of this cognitive and visual reliance for motor control. And if you think about how I used to prescribe therapy and how most of us do, 
you really want to recover motion in the quad. So you have them really focused on it. And, but in hindsight, they can't focus on their knee or the quad when they go back to sports. So we need to think about not training that pathway as early as you can. Most people are probably familiar. Like it's really hard to train out of a motor pattern. So once you've established something, it's harder to sort of detrain it and learn a new skill versus just learning how to generate movement from the beginning. And if you think of an ACL injury or a knee injury, knee motor control, you're basically having to like start over to relearn it because you're having to program movement now with the new sensory afferent stimuli. So you're basically learning a new motor skill. And so think about as a physiotherapist or a physical therapist, athletic trainer, whatever you're, when you're working with these athletes, think about the skill that they're going to have to do eventually. And what changes can I make early in my therapy to support that? Very simple means it's called using external focus of attention or external visual focuses of attention. There's a lot of great people have worked on this. Um, Ali Gokler and Anna Benjaminis, they've done a lot of really cool motor learning work. And there's some, there's a lot of other investigators working on this problem. But basically, you just take their attention, you put it in the environment. And so if you're doing a straight leg raise, instead of having them stare at the quad, you put a target out for them, have them hit the target. And you can be very creative with this. I've had students put laser pointers on the shank and have them hit little cues on the wall. I've had people where though one um, football uh, physio, he had a big TV in his clinic and he was playing football games and he would just pause it. And then he would randomly pause it during the exercises. They were working on like knee extension. And then he would pick a random player and he would say, tell me where that player is going to go next. And so he made it like this. He was only a week or two out of surgery, so he couldn't be very sport specific, but he found a way to incorporate the sport and make his attention be elsewhere. I'm really glad you bring up the external versus internal focus of attention and, and those sorts of cues, because I wonder whether some of the folks listening to us chat today might have heard about some of this discussion and be thinking, does that mean that I should never use an internal focus of attention? I should always make it external. Can you help us out a little bit there? That's a great question. It's something I get a lot from clinicians, because there is data to say that people who have a loss of proprioception they may require a little more internal focus. They may need that extra attention to have good motor control because they don't, they don't have those resources. So this is back where it becomes the art of being a clinician. So what I try to do is I try to, I think of it as a progression like anything else. So you want to add resistance to the leg press and I'm going to add resistance to their visual attention compensation after an injury. So at the beginning, if someone's really struggling, I'll allow them to focus on the task and allow an internal focus of attention. And then as they progress, I try to pull their attention away. And you almost can think of it as, I talked before about, I have this neural control extra thing that I try to progress. Even if you take a very simple knee extension or straight leg raise, but as they progress to like double leg to single leg transitions or squatting or even jumping for plyometrics, I usually start and let them focus their attention on the joint if they need it. And then I'll try to progress them to where they can focus on something else. And then the next one, I'll try to distract them with a dual task. So first I might have them do a straight leg raise to the target. Well, first I'll let them focus on if they need it because you got to recover that quad. They have to contract. If they're not contracting it, then don't distract them. You, you got to make your clinical decision. Then I progress them to external focus and then I'll have a focus on me and I'll be like, add the numbers I'm flashing at you. And so now they have to engage cognition and visual attention on me and then they do their exercises as they go. And then at the end, they tell me the answer. And hopefully I, I was able to do the math along with them. And, and I know the answer to see if they got it right. It's a good test for you as well. 
Exactly. So I have to stay on my toes as well during therapy. I can't get lazy either. One of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier was bringing in technology. And I'm wondering about the balance, finding the balance or striking the balance between building some of this cognitive training into the physical exercises that you're asking patients to do and how much you can harness technology like virtual reality to kind of create a scenario that perhaps stimulates the brain more than you're stimulating the physical capacity of the athlete. I think there's an area of of a lot of potential and the hard part is just translating it because a lot of the technology I mean, as you know, is it can be expensive and hard to implement and cumbersome. So if it takes time and it's not really easy, it's just it's just not going to happen. So this is why, you know, we've had amazing motion capture studies for 30, 40 years, but not every clinician has access to even very simple motion capture tools yet. And we're just now seeing this translation start to happen. And so what we've tried to do a lot is use just smartphone virtual reality if we can. We're actually building our lab YouTube VR webpage. So you could everything we've published on or use in our clinic, you could just go to YouTube VR, hit a button, and it'll play it on two screens. It'll split your phone, and then you could use it in your clinic. And so we're hoping to make it as easy as possible for clinicians. And examples of it that we've used, um, the YouTube or the, the smartphone VR, is we'll do a straight leg raise but you're doing it in sync with someone kicking a soccer ball. So in that scenario, you would get the mirror neuron activity as if you're actually kicking a soccer ball and you get some patient engagement and they can't see their knee. So that's, that is helpful on top of it. And they get some of that immersion of actually being in their sport. We had people do single leg balance while someone's like walking on a tightrope or um, someone's riding a roller coaster. Um, there's also some fun ones. If you think your patient's really relying on vision, um, we've had people look like like we use the top of a building image from Google Images from a first-person view. We have them do a drop landing. So most people might do a landing task. And we find people who really need visual cues to help them move, they look terrible when you put them on top of a building and make them land from a one-foot box versus when it's gone. People that have really good proprioceptive and they really have a sensory motor strategy when their brain turns on to move their knee after an injury, they're not as perturbated by it different athletes rely on different systems more than another. And so as clinicians, and I think you talked about the art of working as a clinician, is to be able to pick up on those things and then to to identify, okay, this athlete is really strong, getting relying really well on their visual input. So is that okay? Do we need to tweak that? How are we going to tweak that? So I think that keeps that keeps you definitely on your toes as a clinician. I would like to drill into some specifics here, and I'm, I'm really keen to get your advice on an easy, can you give us an example of an easy, a moderate, and an advanced exercise for, let's, let's take the example of a soccer player with an ACL injury. In the, in the beginning, if you think of just simple exercises, stuff that's on the table early on in therapy, that it is pretty environmentally constrained. So when I say that, I mean, they don't, you're not really having them run, jump, land, or do any early activities. That's when I'll tend to try to use smartphone virtual reality if I can. And there's a lot of free apps out there. And I'll have them do their straight leg raise or whatever exercise it is and try to do it in sync with something that's much more sport specific. There's a lot of interest data on mirror neurons that a portion of the brain that would integrate the environmental cues and do the task when I visually imagine the task will turn on even if you don't move at all. As people progress, I tend to 
I want them to be engaged in the world as much as possible. So I try to have as many environmental cues as I can and try to keep their cognitive load and try to think about what their sport load will be. And I try to approximate it when, as they progress through their therapy, I'll try to always have some sort of environmental interaction or cognitive challenge involved in the exercise itself. So when they progression double leg to single leg stances, or they start to progress to squatting, I try to always have their attention away from their knee. And then as they get even better, I try to add as much unanticipated or what we call it like multi-stage attention to it. So I try to add, like, maybe I'll give them like a few words to remember, and we're going to do say three sets of 10 squats. And then during the squats, they'll have them stare at me and I'll do like the number flash that they have to add or keep the, keep the numbers in line. And then I want them to recall the words from before. And so that would be in advance of the dual task where that way they can't just use working memory to remember the words. They also have this other, this interference task, which is the number recall during the test. And then I test them again. And so we really borrow a lot from the neuro side of PT and we've been just layering them onto our sport exercises. And that's where a lot of our progression comes from. As we add maybe um, plyometrics and things into that, we mostly the same principle. I mostly think of the cognitive of the neural progression challenge. And I think of it for every exercise. And it's just a layer on top of whatever I'm already going to do. One thing I do like a lot from Lynn Steiner-Mackler's lab is the perturbation training, where you have people have to respond to either knee-specific perturbations or a surface perturbation or maybe a core perturbation. And I like to layer that on a lot with cognitive challenges because then they can't be focused on expecting the perturbation. There's a lot of interesting data on motor expectation and motor planning. And if you allow them to focus on the perturbation to come, then you're not going to get how they're going to react in sport. And so I guess that might be the final advanced one. That sounds pretty advanced, but advanced for the athlete and perhaps advanced for the clinician who's trying to put all of this together too. It's a good challenge. Dustin, you mentioned there that you like smartphone apps and there's some free options available. Can you share a couple of examples that folks can quickly go and search and, and see what suits them and what they like. So in addition to the, our own YouTube BR page and some of the stuff we've been working on, we hope to have that be easier available for clinicians soon, whether that's in an app or through the webpage. But there's also a lot of free stuff. Google and a lot of app developers have made a lot of stuff for entertainment that we just sort of borrow for rehabilitation. So you have Google Street View, Street View VR which is an app that can go anywhere you want. So you can be on top of the Grand Canyon, on top of the Empire State Building, and it's all first-person view. And there's even a lot of really cool um, on the field, like at these famous stadiums. So if you have a kid who's a basketball player, football player, you can take them there and they can just do their rehab on this virtual stadium. Oh, wow. Um, this has a lot of advantages because they can't look at their knee, like I said. So you just remove that compensation pathway entirely and it's a little more engaging. Um, there's also a lot of free roller coaster apps that you can use for balance control or single leg to double leg transitions. And then there's a few interesting ones where people have to like walk across a balance beam and, and a lot of those can be pretty powerful. And how do you figure out which one's going to work for which person? Do you kind of, do you say to the athlete, look, we've got some options here. Do you like, you know, are you scared of heights? Because you might not want to get the person who's scared of heights standing on the top of the Empire State Building. How do you sort of allow that sort of, it's still got to be a safe, relatively safe place for rehab as well. How do you strike that balance? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the VR training is not for everyone's, but basically you want to take a few minutes with your, with your patient. Make sure they're sitting and have them experience like a standard VR video to make sure they don't get what's called simulator sickness. 
And so some individuals, they just can't deal with the, the VR. Sometimes the lag makes them a little sick. And of course, you don't want to play into to fear if they have a great fear of heights. Maybe you don't use those. Um, what can be the most powerful thing, though, we find just a moving scene. We have this um, increased reliance on visual and a specific region in the visual area is um, the lingual gyrus. And this is what we will call cross-modal area. So it tries to match where I am perceptively with where I am visual spatially. So a moving scene visually, even though you're trying to maintain single leg stability, that induces a disconnect in this cross-modal processing. Because visually I'm moving, perceptively I'm not. And so you're actually training that pathway that we find that's over-engaged or disrupted on our ACL patients. And we've done a few studies now where you might be able to make that more efficient and normalize their neural control when you're challenging them in this way, because you're basically decreasing the accuracy of the visual feedback and you're upping the proprioceptive feedback. Yeah. And I guess it's also about making sure that you've really thought through all of the different options and that you're clear with the person that you're working with, what the sort of out is that if someone's starting to feel motion sickness or feel really frightened that they've got a clear way that they know that they can stop this. Because I think, yeah, the the VR, particularly when you've got their headset on, can sort of feel a bit claustrophobic or a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, try it all yourself first before you throw someone in there. And really, end of the day, a lot of this stuff, you don't really have to have the technology. I find once clinicians sort of have these ideas, you can find creative ways to distract them or add a similar load. Like we talked about external focus is just one way without the technology. So it's more just a a slightly nuanced way of thinking and approaching your rehab. And it's less so just a new cookbook or a new toy. It's, it's, It's more just thinking about it. And the people on the ground, the physio on the ground is always going to come up with the best solution, really. I think the other great thing here is that we're often, particularly in sports and making a rehabilitation more and more sports specific. We often sort of get to this scenario where we're limited by space and you've got a limited amount of space in the clinic. You don't have access to the the court or the field. What we're talking about here is is a technology and uh, an environment and a product that you can use in a very limited amount of space in the clinic and even potentially set the athlete up to do some of this work at home when they're not with you one-on-one in the clinic as well. Exactly. If you can, if you think about how we dynamically program movement, right, it's yourself, so the dynamic systems theory, it's your environment and the task you want to do. If I could replace the clinic environment with the sport environment, I'm going to do that every time. And whether that's artificially or in reality, it may seem like it's a small thing, but neurologically, it can have a big impact on how their brains actually generate that movement. And over the course of the whole rehab, that can mean the difference of someone who's neurologically prepared for sport, or maybe they're only physically prepared. Now, you alluded to measuring progress, and I'm really keen to get your advice here, Dustin, on how folks who are listening can assess whether the brain training is working and also how you can monitor progress as well. How do you know when it's time to increase the difficulty? That's a great question. So a lot of what I'll do is I'll just dual task someone. And if they fall apart, when I make them engage in like the number flashes, the one I use often, because it's just very easy. But if, if they're, even if it's something as simple as they struggle to contract their quad during the knee extension, if they have to focus on you and, and add the numbers or remember them, then I know that they're not probably ready to progress. And so I kind of think of it as a, as a leapfrog idea. So if I want to add weight to my leg press or my exercise, I want to add physical resistance. I'll usually advance them with that neurocognitive challenge or that 
attention in the environment challenge. It could be as simple as external focus if you're starting a patient there. And if they fall apart, I don't progress their physical resistance. But if they do well, then I was like, okay, now you can handle more physical load. And maybe I'll do the physical load without a challenge. And then I'll progress their cognitive load. So a lot of clinically, what I found that works for most of the time is this sort of leapfrog effect. We just layer that with our physical progression. I find out, especially our pediatric patients, if you can be creative with it. Yeah. And I think those creative cognitive challenges are also good. They're just as good for the big kids as they are for the little kids too. And uh, particularly for improving compliance and especially I think for, we're talking about ACL injury and we all recognize that rehab is long and tedious at times and boring for anybody, whether you're an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old child, or whether you're an 18 or a 28-year-old or a 38-year-old. So I think, you know, building some creative elements into rehab is is going to be important. Let's finish off, Dustin, by talking a little bit about how one might take the principles that we've we've been talking about, these principles very much focused around the knee and about ACL injuries. What about for other types of injuries? I'm thinking say shoulder injury or severe ankle sprain that might also be challenging for rehabilitation and and require quite a while out of sport? A lot of the findings we've talked about with how the brain changes after a knee injury, we see similar issues with shoulder instability and some similar issues with back pain. The issues with back pain is you have a, a bit more of fear avoidance and sort of the chronicity problem, which adds another layer of complexity to the neural profile. But most ligament-related injuries, especially in the extremities, tend to have a similar presentation. There's a a few groups working on chronic ankle instability, and they're seeing a similar shift in how you would control your ankle joint. And so a lot of what we talked about can really apply to most of them, those injuries. And we have done some work with concussion. And what's interesting about concussion is you see one of the last things to recover is the ability to, is motor control, especially during gait and postural control, when you're cognitively challenged. If you think about what they got to do in sport, they have to, they're challenged in visual cognitive abilities during their sport. And so think about incorporating those in your return to play test, even very simply. And so for concussion, a lot of our rehabilitation now involves a lot of similar stuff we do for our ACL patients, where we're trying to recover their motor stability during postural control, during gait, and during jumping, landing, sort of plyometric activities under a cognitive load, because we know their motor stability is still degraded. And a lot of concussion rehabilitation just doesn't include that. Dustin, thanks for challenging us today to think differently and creatively about how we challenge athletes in rehabilitation and think about how we build sport-specific training. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.